The best part of the experience has been seeing the love people on this campus have for this institution. Coming up on Carolina Connection, Interim Chancellor Lee Roberts discusses his first month at Carolina, politics, and campus safety. Good morning, I'm Henry Taylor. And I'm Caroline Horn. Also this week, will state leaders punish the Chapel Hill-Carborough City School District for refusing to follow a state law concerning LGBTQ students? Animal shelters in the Triangle are overcrowded, and some changes have come to the traditional art of contradancing. I probably won't come to a dance unless I know for sure that the caller is doing non-gendered calling. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Following the departure of Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz last semester, UNC System President Peter Hans named Lee Roberts as UNC's interim chancellor December 15th. Roberts, a finance executive in Raleigh, previously served on the UNC System Board of Governors and as budget director for Republican former Governor Pat McCrory. He joins us now to discuss his time as interim chancellor so far and his future at Carolina. Interim Chancellor Roberts, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here. So a little over a month into the semester, what so far has been the most surprising aspect as interim chancellor? Thank you. Well, I have to say the the best part of the experience has been seeing the love that people on this campus have for this institution. It's really, you can almost feel it in the air. There's this palpable enthusiasm that faculty, students, and staff have for Carolina. It's not like that everywhere. So it's important that we preserve and cherish that unique enthusiasm. And I want to ask you about the role of politics in your job at UNC. The American Association of University Professors has condemned the North Carolina legislature and the UNC system leadership for political interference. The faculty council has expressed similar concerns. And even two former UNC system presidents, one Democrat and one Republican, are calling for reform in how the system is run. Do you think that politicians have too much influence on UNC? Well, Caroline, you know, we're a public school, obviously. We're a flagship and we're spending billions of dollars of taxpayer money. So the taxpayers' representatives in the General Assembly are going to be involved. And the truth is, it's always been that way. I've talked to just about every one of my predecessors, and they all have a lot of stories about the the General Assembly making them do things that maybe they they didn't want to do, no matter who was in charge in Raleigh. While there's a national narrative about political interference in higher education, that often comes with a subtext about lack of funding or disinvestment, and that couldn't be farther from the case here in North Carolina. Most years, we spend a greater percentage of our tax revenue on higher education than any other state in the country. So we're an extremely well-funded system and school, and I expect that to continue. One big concern on campus this semester continues to be safety. There is still some fear among students, faculty, and staff. What would you say to people who don't feel safe at UNC? August 28th was a terrible day for everybody who cares about this campus and this community, and I think we learned some lessons that day. There's there's an after-action report that uh, that is being finalized now. I've seen a draft of that. There are some things we can do to make sure that, that we're doing a better job keeping everybody safe. 
but in general, we do have an extremely safe campus, and this is an environment where everyone can and should feel safe. You said that there were some lessons that we learned that day and things that we could do. What are some of these things? Uh, for example, placement of cameras around campus. We don't have cameras everywhere you might expect us to have cameras, and we don't have a central monitoring system for controlling and receiving all of the information that we get from the cameras. So that's an, an obvious area for upgrades. We've talked about license plate readers and the ability to use technology to determine who's driving on and off of our, our campus. So that's technology that's in place in several other schools in the UNC system. So I think we'll have the, the license plate readers installed before the end of the semester. And it's purely a public safety concern. So the, 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 we, don't, we have an open campus. We don't have gates or walls or checkpoints. Given that, in the event of some kind of incident or security threat, it's just useful technology to be able to have. Lastly, however long you are in your position, how do you hope UNC will be different on your last day from how it is now? Yeah, what a great question. So I've been trying to make sure that there's a, a smooth transition, making sure that students and faculty and staff have the, have the resources that they need. There are some things... Um, that we've put in place already, for example, trying to streamline the faculty hiring process, which we've heard from a lot of folks is, is more difficult than maybe it needs to be. We're looking at refreshing some aspects of the strategic plan, but I couldn't be more excited to be here. I couldn't be more grateful for the opportunity to, to serve this wonderful community and, of course, our, our great state. So thank you very much for having me. That was Interim Chancellor Lee Roberts. He has not announced whether he will apply for the permanent chancellor position. You can listen to the full version of our interview at carolinaconnection.org. The Chapel Hill Carborough Board of Education is refusing to follow the so-called Parents' Bill of Rights. That's a law the state legislature passed last year. The board argues that two of the law's provisions directly target the LGBTQ community and could harm students, but some state leaders say they plan to force the board to comply. Helen Wickett has the story. This summer, the Republican majority of the North Carolina General Assembly passed the Parents' Bill of Rights. State governments nationwide are introducing bills that seek to enumerate the rights of parents to direct the upbringing, education, health care, and mental health of their minor children, and this bill is one of them. Despite the bill now being law, the Board of Education for Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools has decided not to implement it. Their concerns with the legislation have to do with two controversial parts. First, the prohibition of discussing gender identity and sexual orientation in classrooms through fourth grade. Second, a mandate that school employees inform parents when a child wants to use a different name or pronoun in school. Chief Communications Officer for Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools, Andy Jenks, says the board is looking out for the best interests of the community by not implementing the Parents' Bill of Rights. The board is sticking to the core values of our school district in that we will maintain safe, nurturing environments for all students and staff that best look out for the wellness of everyone who's in our care. Democratic State Senator Greg Meyer of Orange County says the new law is part of a right-wing political agenda. The Republicans clearly pushed this bill as a culture war issue. Meyer says the bill harms the relationship between parents, teachers, and students. Most parents understand that we raise our children in a village, that we can't do it all alone, 
that there are moments in time where we struggle with our kids and we need other adults to help our kids make it through the difficult years of adolescence. That's why we depend on teachers, coaches, ministers, etc. And this bill really interrupts that trust. North Carolina Superintendent of Public Instruction, Catherine Truitt, posted on X addressing Chapel Hill saying, you may not break the laws you don't like. She said it was unacceptable for any school board not to abide by the laws laid out in the bill. Tammy Fitzgerald, executive director for the North Carolina Values Coalition and supporter of the bill, argues parents have a right to all information regarding their children. It's important to remember that the parent is the primary person responsible for the child, not the school. And the bill was enacted because schools were inserting themselves between the parent and child and interfering in that parent-child relationship. Fitzgerald explains the goals of the bill. One of the main things the bill seeks is transparency of, between the child and the school. If the bill is not implemented by Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools, there may be consequences. Uh, several of the legislators have already threatened uh, to make sure these school districts follow the law. And they have different ways they can do that. You know, they can uh, withhold funding or they can uh, impose fines. Michael Gutierrez, however, a Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools parent and UNC English professor, says he trusts teachers and administrators to act in the children's best interest. They're professionals at it. They are doing a job that is vastly underpaid. They are overworked. Their resources are strained already. And they spent a long time really learning how to work with children and get the best out of them, and I think I trust them to do that right now. Jenks, the district spokesman, wouldn't speculate on what the board might do if legislators impose punishments for disregarding it. In Chapel Hill, I'm Helen Wickett. Since Chat GPT came out last fall, UNC has been trying to catch up with how students and faculty use artificial intelligence in their classes. Some professors are embracing the technology. Sarah Ellis has more. In the 2023 fall semester, the UNC Generative AI Committee released the first official university policy regarding the use of artificial intelligence by students and faculty. The university did not ban the use of generative AI and instead mandated that students disclose when they had used AI for their assignments. Many other college and universities, on the other hand, such as Washington University and the University of Vermont, said that AI cannot be used at all in their classrooms. Assistant Professor of Digital Storytelling and Journalism and a member of the UNC AI Committee, Scott Geyer, said he strongly encourages the use of generative AI in every department. In all of my classes, I try to have daily exercises that involve AI. And you get better at how to formulate problems by trying to solve them, even if you fail, with AI. One of Geyer's classes is called Intro to Digital Storytelling. Students spend a semester working on a micro-documentary, and Geyer says when students are struggling to find a topic, he says, Have you tried asking AI? Now, I know that it, some people would roll their eyes at that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to give it a role. You are the role of, a, you know, you're a, a student in intro, introductory video documentary class. And here are the parameters, right? And just seeing these randomly generated uh, ideas often sparks like, oh, well, I won't do that, but that gives me this idea. Geyer theorizes that AI is the future of the job fields that are in the business of information, such as journalism, user interface and design, coding, and others. He strongly encourages that professors and faculty incorporate AI into their lesson planning. He says professors can gain insight into what kind of prompting will work and how to help their students better understand and use artificial intelligence. And the, the one thing that I've found that works that I think all professors should be doing, regardless of what they teach, you need to be collecting 
these chatbot conversations and, re and reviewing them because that's the raw data that we're going to need in order to figure out how to do this right. Geyer isn't the only professor to use AI in his classes. Music and English major Zoe Wins says her professors encourage her to use it to study for assignments. When I'm studying for like a midterm or a final, I'll ask it to give me like, you know, potential study questions or like fake, uh, like practice tests, that kind of thing with the material that I have. The uses of AI will most likely only increase as the technology advances. And Professor Geyer says he thinks AI has already changed the way education works. I'm a firm believer that we are no longer in the business of teaching like how to, and then fill in the blank, right? Like how to record a podcast, how to write an article, how to do a titration in a chemistry class. We are now in the business, or we should be, of teaching how to use AI to do that. In Chapel Hill, I'm Sarah Ellis. In 1889, an 18-year-old black man was killed by a mob of white men near the present-day intersection of Old Greensboro Road and Hatch Road. Now, 126 years later, the town of Carborough has unveiled a historical marker in honor of his life. Jessica Simmons reports. Last Sunday in Carborough, when temperatures dropped to the 30s, over 60 people from the community gathered at the Carborough Town Commons. Together they sang and commemorated the life and tragic death of Maylie McCauley through a historical marker unveiling. Titled The Lynchka of Maylie McCauley, the marker is royal blue with gold trim and tells the history of McCauley's life and how he died. The marker was unveiled by distant relatives of McCauley, such as Andre Allen and Robert Walker. Walker said we're living in very serious times. As we integrated into what whites have taught us, we have actually took on the problems of America because we have not learned our own history. We have not stood up for our own history. It has been forgotten. At the event, the mayor of Carborough, Barbara Fushi, said Macaulay was gone too soon. Manly Macaulay, an 18-year-old farmhand, victim of racial terror lynching. Manly Macaulay never got the chance to grow into full adulthood and enjoy life. Macaulay was lynched by a mob of white men in 1898 after they accused him of eloping with a white woman. C.J. Suit, performance poet and Carborough's poet laureate, said in black culture, physical death is only a part of things. And now we actually live on, as long as people remember us and continue to say our names. Before his spoken words, Suit said he always starts with Lucille Clifton's poem, Come Celebrate With Me. End of the poem where she says, Come celebrate with me, that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. And this February in Black History Month, um, I just want to let Manly McCauley know myself, and I would hope that we are letting him know in this moment that uh, they tried to kill you, but they failed. The marker stands in the pole in front of the Carborough Town Hall, with names of the Orange County Community Remembrance Coalition and the Equal Justice Initiative, two organizations that organize the event. The Coalition's Committee Chair, Diane Robertson, said the public narrative a nation creates is about what's important and what's reflected in memorials and monuments. Who is honored, what is remembered, what is memorialized, tells a story about a society that can't be reflected 
in other ways. U.S. Congresswoman Valerie Fushi said over 4,000 people were victimized to lynching nationwide, including 120 reported in North Carolina. She said the lynchings are a stain on the nation's history and that we still feel the immense pain generations later. Racial violence is a horrific part of our past, but unfortunately it is still a part of our present. In Carborough, I'm Jessica Simmons. Each year, North Carolina shelters take in over 120,000 animals. Shelters around the Triangle are fighting to lower the state's euthanasia rate and send more animals to their forever homes. Carolina Connections' Taylor Hallbrooks has more. North Carolina animal shelters have the second highest euthanasia rate in the country in 2021. Shelter Animals Count database reports that animal intakes at both public and private shelters across the country are expected to reach a three-year high, and adoptions are not keeping pace. Megan Frost is the community outreach manager at Wake County Animal Center. Frost said the shelter hadn't euthanized an animal from the adoption floor in over eight years, although they came close last year, when they were hours away from having to euthanize healthy, adoptable animals. Thankfully, we rallied in our rescue partners, in our community members, in our fosters, and our volunteers, and everyone stepped up and we were able to avoid it. I don't think that we're going to be able to this year. I would love to be wrong, but knowing how close we came more than once last year, and knowing how euthanasia in America has started going up for the first time in years, um, we're lucky that we were able to push it off as long as we have. I would love for 2024 to be as big of a success story as 2023 was. So this is the original dog adoption floor. This is what people think of when they think of like animal sheltering in the 90s. Within the Wake County shelter walls, only 132 kennels exist for dogs, aligning with humane care standards. More often than not, these kennels are split to house double the animals, leading to a cramped adoption floor and heightened stress levels among the dogs. Despite efforts, the constant influx of homeless animals persists, challenging the center's capacity to provide adequate care. It's not just us, and it's, it's, it's just, it's not easy. I know that the recent press releases and the recent situations with the animal center and at the animal center has angered and upset a lot of people and if they can channel that into change and they can channel that into a positive, let's go. Along with WCAC, shelters are working towards a common goal to lower euthanasia rates and raise adoption rates across the triangle. Wake County has two in-shelter veterinarians and a dedicated team of experts working to treat and rehome each animal that enters their door. Because we're always driving towards the highest live release we could possibly have. We always want to get these animals out alive. Shelters circulate thousands of pets in and out of their doors, and it takes a village to break the cycle. Tanil Fox is Orange County Animal Services Communications Specialist, where she works to get the word out to the public about available pets, adoption discounts, volunteer opportunities, and promote their low-cost spay and neutering service. And that, along with just community members in general supporting our shelter, means that we are a healthy shelter and we get to keep a really good adoption rate. We work hard for it. Right now, Orange County is hosting their Valentine adoption special with drastically low adoption fees for the entire month of February. Shelters across the Triangle are working on new ways to get the community involved. 
Community members will continue to play a pivotal role to keep pets alive and relieve local shelters from overpopulation. We open at noon, Monday through Saturday. So stop by and walk through, see uh, what you want to fall in love with because you're probably going to fall in love with a pet. (laughs) That is so sweet. Low cost and forward thinking efforts are moving across county borders as shelters continue to encourage pet adoption and envision a healthy shelter system for the Triangle. In Raleigh, I'm Taylor Holbrooks. listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Henry Taylor. And I'm Caroline Horn. Contra dancing is a popular folk dance throughout the Appalachian region that has origins in the 17th century, but now it's incorporating some 21st century changes. Some dances are moving away from the traditional pairings of ladies and gents and going gender neutral. As Sierra Pfeiffer reports, it's a big transition for an activity that hasn't changed much for the past 200 years. All right, everybody take a deep breath. Let's do this. Contra dancing has been part of America almost since the nation was founded. It's similar to square dancing, except the couples are arranged in long lines. More than 200 contra dance groups around the country twirl and do do to traditional and more modern music. The monthly dances at the Carborough Century Center not only feature 70s pop classics, but also another break with tradition. We have transitioned to gender-free calling at this particular dance, and so a couple is going to be made up of a lark and a raven. That's caller Emily Rush, and she's referring to couples as larks and ravens, rather than ladies and gents. Ravens, turn by the right, find your partner and swing. Gender neutrality is a trend as contra dancing has spread beyond its country roots to bigger cities, suburbs, and college towns like Carborough. One recent survey found more than 100 non-gendered dance groups across the nation. Rita Bennett Chu is the president of the group that hosted the Carborough event. I really dig like callers being creative, callers being inclusive. And as an organizer, I think the number one thing that's important is to make everybody feel welcome. Five, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four. Oh, yeah. I probably won't come to a dance unless I know for sure that the caller is doing non-gendered calling. That's Beck Muffelman, who's non-binary. Not really wanting to be labeled um, either gent or lady. Hearing that repetition over was just kind of like nails on a chalkboard. But why larks and ravens? They're distinct enough to be understood over music, and they start with L and R to correspond to the partners on the left and the right. Some callers use robins instead because ravens are culturally significant to North American indigenous groups. 
Country dance historian David Millstone says these words have been a major transition away from contradancing's original roots. Contradancing historically stems from English country dance, which is a very gendered form of dance, um, typically men and women lining up as couples to dance in long lines. Millstone says a big reason people dance is to meet romantic partners. So it's not surprising gender roles have changed in contradancing as they've changed in society. Still, he says it's not easy for everyone to accept. The argument that it's more inclusive doesn't ring completely true because it does tend to exclude some older dancers, people who are accustomed to one role uh, and one set of terminology. Hey, your neighbor, Back in Carborough, Mark Rosso has been contradancing for more than 20 years and says non-gendered terms have pros and cons. I'm an experienced dancer and I sometimes have to pause like, am I a lark? Am I a raven? And it takes me a while even though I'm experienced. So I enjoy it when I don't have to make that extra effort. But I do appreciate um, a wider variety of people here. But as the music flared across the hardwood floor, Rosso and most of the other dancers were focused on trying to keep up with the caller and have a good time, not on what they and their partners were called. In Carborough, I'm Sierra Pfeiffer. Now let's bounce over to sports. I'm joined by Carolina Connections' Lucas Tomei. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So the Tar Heels women's basketball team was able to ward off the Wolfpack Thursday night. NC State is ranked number six in the AP Top 25 poll, with UNC women's basketball not even ranked in the top 25. So what do you think contributed most to that victory over NC State? Yeah, that was a huge win at home for Courtney Banghart's squad, who had recently slipped out of the AP poll after four losses in a row. This win against NC State was their third straight victory, this of course being one of their biggest wins of the season. One player in particular that stood out to me was Lexi Donarski. She's a graduate transfer from Iowa State, um, one of the team's top shooters. She scored 23 points on five of nine shooting from the three-point line. Um, and her sort of explosiveness uh, offensively from behind that arc gave the Tar Heels the edge they needed to beat out the Wolfpack. And of course, the team as a whole played really great defense. Uh, they held the Wolfpack to just 35% shooting from the field compared to their own 50%. So just a mix of good shooting and solid defense gave UNC that big rivalry win. Yeah, so now turning towards the Tar Heels men's game tonight against the Virginia Cavaliers, Virginia returned to the AP Top 25 ranking in mid-February, but they've since fallen out of that ranking after a loss to Wisconsin. So, But they're also currently ranked third in the ACC. So what do you think Tar Heel fans should expect out of this matchup tonight? Yeah, Virginia has always played um, UNC really, really well at home, uh, especially uh, the past 10 years. UNC has not beaten Virginia in Charlottesville in a very long time, and that's something they're going to hope to change today. Um, this Virginia team is good. They're not great like you've seen other Virginia teams in the past, but they still have that same sort of defensive identity that head coach Tony Bennett has built up um, over the past several years with the program. So I think you're going to see a tight defense. I think you're going to see an offense led through uh, Virginia guard Reese Beekman, um, who's been a familiar foe for the Tar Heels the past couple years. 
And we're going to see if the Tar Heels can sort of get over that sort of slump they've had in Charlottesville for a while now. All right. That was Carolina Connections' Lucas Tomei. Thanks so much for joining us today. Of course. It's a pleasure as always. Rain and gloomy skies have arrived in Chapel Hill this weekend. Carolina Connections' Noah Powell walked around campus to ask how students spend their rainy days. My name is William Walker Gibbons. On rainy days, I love rainy days. I like to make coffee, uh, sit by a window, drink that coffee. Sometimes go for a walk if it's not too wet. That's about it. Hi, I'm Jaisa Sanchez. And on rainy days, when I'm not walking in it and kind of being upset about it, I like to sit and just watch the rain or listen to the rain because I absolutely love the rain and I think it's so pretty and I love the sounds. Hi, my name is Erin Luoma and on rainy days I like to curl up with a book and I like to take a nap. My name is Emily Chambliss. On rainy days I like to go walk in the rain and just feel one with nature. <laughs> okay, I'm uh, Gigi Holiday, and on rainy days I like to get a warm drink and cozy up somewhere. Uh, my name is Ian Charles Lowe, and on rainy days, I like to frolic in the puddles like a whimsical little child. And that's it for Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Husman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical directors are CJ Henderson and Sierra Pfeiffer. I'm Henry Taylor. And I'm Caroline Horn. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and X at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.